Today we are in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the fifth church on this circuit of letters that goes to what was then called Asia. We used to call it Asia Minor. It, technically now it is the nation of Turkey. And this fifth city is Sardis. Sardis was uniquely situated uh, on a ridge. Uh, you know, it's kind of a... Uh, part of the mountain that just went out, jutted out by itself, and they built out on the top of that ridge, and it overlooked the Hermas Valley. It was unapproachable because the cliffs on each side were 1,500 feet high, and there was one little trail that wound up to enter onto that ridge, and it led to a big fortified gate to get into the city. Its location made it nearly impossible to assault. And eventually the city outgrew that ridge and, and was expanded to the valley below. But whenever they were attacked, of course, everyone would go up into what they called the citadel, the fortress on that ridge. It had been a very wealthy city. Hundreds of crucibles for refining gold had been discovered in the ruins. This was where Croesus ruled, of whom it was said as rich as Croesus. The city was once the capital of the wealthy Lydian Empire. It's said to be the home of Asaph, the author of many fables, and the first place that minted gold and silver coins, and the first to dye wool, of which there was an abundance because of the pastures that surrounded the river that was below the city. It was a major trade route that led to the Persian capital of Susa, so it's like location was ideal. The history of the city, though, parallels this letter from Jesus. King Croesus attacked the Persian Empire. And when the Persians got the best of his army, they chased him back, and finally they retreated up into the citadel on that ridge. And the Persian army was camped in between the cliffs below. And it looked like, well, Croesus had an ideal opportunity to counterattack. But the night before, um, everyone slept soundly because they thought their 
place was impregnable. And the Persian army sent somebody up that cliff. They, actually, what happened was they saw one of the uh, sardine uh, soldiers dropped his helmet, and he climbed down part of the cliff to retrieve his helmet. And it gave somebody the idea, that cliff is scalable. So in the middle of the night, the only people who were awake were two guards at the gate. And one of the soldiers climbed that cliff, took out the guards, opened the gate, and the city was conquered. But that's not the only time it happened. It happened much later, about 195 BC. Um, uh, Antiochus the Great um, was attacking the city, and same thing happened. The city felt it was secure, that it was impregnable, and he sent someone up the cliff, and they took the city. And while those who held the city guarded the gate, this one man made the way for the invading army. The city was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD, but Emperor Tiberius provided finances to rebuild it. And in gratitude uh, for that generosity, uh, the city built a temple honoring Tiberius. They also had a temple of Sibyl. We've seen uh, her worship of her as Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. It's also helpful to know that near the city were hot springs, which were believed to be a places where gods could bring the dead back to life. When Jesus sent the letter to the church at Sardis, the city was still prosperous, but its importance was beginning to fade. Verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and seven stars. Now, in each letter, Jesus describes himself at the beginning, and in this one, he describes himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. We've seen before that that represents the Holy Spirit. Jesus has the attributes of God, everything about the nature of God is true of Jesus as well. He is perfect in his nature. He's complete. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing's missing. He sees all. He knows the condition in Sardis as well as in Sedona. Nothing, nothing escapes him. Jesus also holds the seven stars. So the messenger of Sardis who's going to deliver this letter, is in his hand. It doesn't come with personal bias or the opinions of man. The validity of the words in their delivery does not need to be questioned. The messenger delivers the true words of God. In the last half of verse 1, I know your works. Jesus says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Picture the church of Sardis gathered to hear this letter. And now they've already heard the other letters that they, the reader certainly started with the beginning and read to this point. And now they're excited. Oh, it's our turn. He's going to tell us uh, about what we're doing here and we're going to hear from Jesus. And, and, as he began, they heard, uh, 
I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, the elder reads, and, and everybody smiles and says, yes, we're a living church. In the previous letters, Jesus acknowledged works, some good, some not good. But then he reads, but you are dead. Smiles would have turned to shocked expressions. For this church, works consisted of lifeless activity in which the church was involved. They were busy, but only in ways that would give them a good reputation in the community. They were careful not to make waves by openly declaring the gospel or standing for the truth of God's word. And when I read this, I immediately thought of the Church of America. We have programs and works galore. But here's the question we should always ask ourselves. Are they at the direction of the Holy Spirit out of a heart for God? Or is it just another program? This is the reason Jesus introduced himself as having the seven spirits of God. Some commentators point to Isaiah 11.2 to define this, where there are six attributes of the spirit mentioned and seven if you include his presence with us. The six are wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. All of those attributes are applied to Jesus in different passages. If the Spirit is present with them, directing their works, then their works are going to be done in counsel, his counsel, his wisdom, his might, etc. But if our activity is a, a result of waiting upon God and hearing his direction, then there's going to be fruit following his lead, moving according to the direction of the word of God and full of life and of the Holy Spirit. If, however, the works are the good ideas of man, no matter how creative, no matter how good they may, may appear on the outside, it's dead works. Dead works are the efforts of people who think they can accomplish the work of the Lord in their own strength. Works that have the life of the Spirit and bear the fruit that last are directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the ways we discern the difference between the two is to watch for the hand of God. Uh, Years ago, we did a Masterpiece Christian art show downstairs. We, had, we turned the downstairs into uh, an art exhibit of Christian art. And in fact, we did it two different times. And when the uh, members were deciding to do this, at the very same time, our worship leader was in Washington without even knowing that we were considering this, talking to the lady who organized and led the program. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> no, when you see those unexplainable coincidences, you're seeing the hand of God at work, the hand of providence that often goes uh, unrecognized 
And yet we who are in Christ go, oh yeah, God's working. And I, and I think that the same we could say for Jesus in the house. It wasn't our idea. We didn't say, I know how to reach young people. Let's uh, do this, this, and that. It just happened. God did it. God directed it. It, it just grew because the Holy Spirit kept prompting to add this, add that. And we saw fruit and fruit that will last. And only in heaven will we know the fruit from our cooperation with the Lord in whatever he leads us to do. The elders don't search for programs to do. You know, out there in the uh, 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 Christian publishing world, <laughs> There are so many things you can buy, so many programs to operate. And we don't dig through them and say, this one sounds good. We do wait on the Lord and seek his direction. Because if we see him at work, as Blackaby has said, if we see him as a, at work, that's his invitation for us to join him. It's his work, not ours. Now, not everything that comes to us or everything that looks like it might be an opportunity gets approved. We have to discern the difference between man's good ideas and what the Lord is setting before us. Which are the good works he's planned in advance to do with the cooperation of the Holy Spirit. That's what will produce lasting fruit for the glory of God. I've been in the church all my life, and I have been in so many programs and activities that did nothing. There was no lives changed. As far as we could tell, uh, there was nothing lasting that was accomplished. Now, God uses everything. So maybe there were things that uh, God used anyway, in spite of our... Uh, lifeless activities, sometimes people are touched, and that's all to his glory, of course. So this doesn't only apply to the church body, but also to each of us individually. We, we have a corporate effort as a body of believers here in Sedona, but we also are prompted in our own lives to work with the Lord as he brings things before us and as he shows us these opportunities to serve him we wait on the Lord and discern what's from him and what's from man discern what has life and what is just a dead work we must take the time in the word and in prayer and in his presence to have that discernment we must have the patience to wait until we know. Sometimes we see things that we'd like to do. Sometimes we see things that we think, oh, this will be great. But until we wait on the Lord and get his direction, we need to wait on the Lord. We must learn to live waiting on him, sensitive to his promptings as we go about our day's work. Only then will our work bear fruit that lasts? You know, I think this is one of the most difficult things uh, and most needed things for us as Christian believers to 
discern between what's of me and what's of God. That little thought that popped into my head, where did it come from? And the only way you'll really grow in that discernment is to grow in your knowledge of the word of God because the word of God will confirm it. If you're in Christ, once you begin that activity, you will sense the difference. You know when there's life. And sometimes you can tell by the resistance you get. You know, people sometimes say, oh, I got an open door, this is God's will. Well, sometimes you get a closed door and a lot of resistance because it is God's will and the enemy's resisting it. At other times, it's how our, our hearts are touched and encouraged because we see God at work, because he's stirring in us. And you know when life is absent, because it just feels like routine. Jesus goes on to commend, command them to, verse two, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Their works were dead, but the people weren't, at least not yet. They were asleep, but they still had something of life, and yet it was dying. The lullaby of conformity and ease had caused them to sleep the sleep of routine ritual. They went through the motions, but the sacraments didn't stir their heart to awaken. You know, when we celebrate communion, some of us will be awake. Our hearts will be stirred and broken again. Our first love will be fanned into a flame or we will be spiritually asleep, going through the motions. We can slip back into a life of just living to get by, to make a little more money, try to maintain our health, enjoy our entertainment while forgetting what life is really all about like the churches at Ephesus, which was doing good things, but had forgotten their first love. It almost sounds like Jesus is speaking of earning salvation in this passage, unless you remember the work that Jesus asked us to do is to believe on the one God has sent. In John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Their works were not complete because their belief was fading. It was in danger of being extinguished. Our work is complete as long as we're feeding our belief with the word and our communion with the spirit and with fellow believers. If our faith is growing, it's complete. We should continue to grow until our faith is fully matured on the day that we see Jesus face to face. We need to regularly ask ourselves if our faith is indeed growing. Are we being lulled to sleep by luxury and ease? Is our spiritual life routine or is it alive and growing? The application to the history of Sardis is obvious. Twice they had thought they were secure that they could sleep at ease, not concerned about the forces that were trying to conquer them. And we have a force trying to conquer us. 
the one that goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Twice they were asleep and when they were invaded and when they were invaded and conquered. Now we don't need to fear the enemy of our soul for greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We do need to fear the Lord and always be awake though and growing in Christ. The enemy of our soul can only conquer our life if we remain asleep and stop feeding our faith with the word of God and prayer. What remained in the Sardis church is brought up in the next verse, in verse three. Remember then what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. They still had the word that was first planted in that church. It probably came from the Apostle Paul. And it reminds me of what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. They'd received the pure gospel and needed to guard that good deposit. Almost everyone here today has that good deposit in them. You have heard the gospel and we need to guard it and keep it. The command to keep it implies that they were letting it slip away and that's why they needed to repent. In this case, the change of mind would be more highly, to, to more highly value the word that founded that city church in that city. They were not treasuring it as they should have. This world was becoming more important to them than the word. And it's going to be one or the other in our lives. We cannot serve two masters. Fortunately, unlike the last church, Thyatira, which did not heed their letter and soon dissolved, the people of Sardis must have heeded the letter, woken up and repented, repented. Because we read in the second century of a bishop named Melito, who wrote one of the first commentaries on the book of Revelation. He was uh, noted by several of the early church fathers as one of the leading bishops of that second century. Jesus then lays out the warning and the consequences for not waking up in the last half of verse three. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus described his second coming as being like a thief in the night. The second coming didn't occur in their lifetime, but certainly some would have died suddenly or unexpectedly. We do not know what will happen tomorrow. Our life is like a mist that appears and then vanishes. We should always be ready for our departure from this life. We may think we'll get more serious about our relationship with the Lord when we get a little older, but we don't know if we have tomorrow. We should always be ready for our departure. The time to get serious about our eternal destiny is now. 
If we do not wake up, we will not be prepared when he comes for us. Motier notes that there are four things that must be done. Number one, they must remember how they received and heard the gospel. That is, they must remember how it gripped their lives with a dynamic spirit of devotion, readiness, and love, alertness, and energy. Hunger and thirst, life and vitality, service, witnessing, and ministry. Number two, they must arouse and awaken and hold fast to the original spirit that gripped their lives, that first love. Number three, they must repent. They had done wrong. They had sinned against Christ by losing their fervor and becoming lethargic. They desperately needed to confess their wrong and repent. They needed to turn away from the error and turn back to Christ. They needed to have prayer meetings, seeking Christ to stir their hearts, to set them aflame for him. And number four, they must know that the judgment of Christ will fall upon them if they refuse to repent. And it will fall unexpectedly. If the church and its believers refuse to watch, refuse to arouse themselves, then Christ will come upon them as a thief. The church and its believers will be worthless, of no value or worth to Christ and his kingdom. End of quote. Verse four. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In this verse, we not only see that some of the believers were awake and did have that ongoing relationship with the Lord, but we also see part of the reason the rest of the church had fallen asleep they had soiled their garments. Jude 23 explains what that means. It reads, save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These stained garments are contrast to the white garments of heaven. We're to be clothed in Christ, to have put him on, Soiled garments then represent a life that looks like the world more than it demonstrates Christ. It's dabbling in the sins of worldliness that give the wrong witness of Christ to the world. It's business dealings that cheat others. It's excessive indulgence in what the world calls pleasure. It's everything that's inconsistent with those seven spirits of God and Jesus. It's putting the creation above the creator. Thankfully, there were some in the church who were awake and had not compromised. And once again, we have this controversial expression of their worthiness. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now we are only worthy because we are in the worthy one, amen? He alone is worthy. And when we're in him, we are in white. However, the result of being in the worthy one is righteous actions. It's a life that's unpolluted by the world, as James said in James 1.27. This church in Sardis, again, it just, it reminds me of America. 
So many are asleep. They know a few scriptures. They remember some of the Bible stories because they went to church when they were young. Now they don't really want to hear anything about Jesus. In fact, you bring up Jesus and you can see the expression on their face change. They have no desire to be woken out of their slumber or luxury and ease. You know, Jesus often calls us through catastrophes that are warnings to wake us up. But like Israel of old, many necks are too stiff to turn. So many people just refuse to turn and look to him. In fact, when someone suggests that a catastrophe is the Lord warning us, they're mocked and ridiculed. We see ourselves, like Sardis, as an impregnable city on a hill. I think that image is beginning to change. We sleep soundly while the cliffs are being scaled. Will we wake up and repent? Will we strengthen what remains and is about to die? It's up to each of us. Though the whole nation turns to sensuality and greed, you can be found in Jesus. You can be clothed in white with unsoiled garments like these few in Sardis. They must have been the ones who kept the church from dying, who eventually led to that time when Melito was their bishop. A few can make a difference because, I love this expression, one person and Christ are a majority. <laughs> Will you be those who hold fast to your faith so that this church continues to shine the truth here in Sedona? Each letter closes with a promise to those who conquer by remaining in Christ, who is the great victor, the ultimate overcomer. Verse five, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. White is the color of heaven. Those in Christ Jesus will be clothed with sinless heavenly body like that of our glorious savior. Our names will re remain forever in the book of life. Hallelujah. You know, Greek cities usually had a register. They put the names of all the citizenry in that ledger. And when someone committed a serious crime, their name would be blotted out of the book because ink in that day didn't have the acid to etch the parchment. So they just take a little blot with a little moisture on it and blot their name out. It's my opinion that from the beginning, we are all written in the book of life, every one of us. It's not God's will that any should perish, and only those who insist on living apart from God must be blotted out. God will let them have their way. Jesus warned us that there are more names that will be blotted out than those that remain. Since we were not ashamed of the name of Jesus, Jesus will not be ashamed of us before the Father 
and before the angels. If we confess Jesus on earth by our words and our actions, Jesus will confess us before the hosts of heaven and his Father. Verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus ends each of these letters asking us if we have been blessed with spiritual ears that are willing to hear the truth. Each of these letters is for us all. It's the Spirit of God speaking to our hearts, and it's up to us to listen and receive. Now, later in this book, Jesus is going to use language from this letter to give another warning in chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. If our sins are not covered by the one who died in our place, we will be exposed. We'll not be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We'll be found asleep when he comes for our souls or at the second coming. I pray that you have an ear to hear what the Spirit said to the churches this morning. Stay awake, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen what remains, fan into flame the gift of God within you. Amen. Joe, would you lead us in a closing song and then I'll give the benediction.